Hi, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon. Let's let them know that we love them. Big round of applause for them. And let's open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are in the second chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to cover the first 12 verses of chapter 2 this week. The title of this message is Real Ministry. Paul will be talking about the ministry that he and his buddies, his little apostolic missionary band that he was traveling with, Uh, engaged in in Thessalonians. But I want us to be thinking about our own ministries because every single Christian is called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single Christian is called to live life on mission for God's glory. We have much to learn from Paul and his words here. So we'll read the first 12 verses. I am reading and teaching from the New Living Translation this week. Uh, This is just a pretty wordy passage, and in the New American Standard, it was a bit cumbersome, at least for me. I'm not that smart, so the New Living Translation just kind of helped to make it clear for me, so I'll be using that this week. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul writes and says, You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. And yet, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So you can see that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children, or gentle as the New American Standard says, among you. And we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, the gospel, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses. And so is God, that we were devout, and honest and faultless toward all you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and his glory. This is God's word, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is before us today. And we ask that by the work of the Holy Spirit, your word would get in us today. That your word would be transformative for us today. That your word would encourage us, your word would challenge us, convict us. 
Your word would train us, that your word would have an effect in our lives, that we would be faithful followers of Jesus. And so we thank you for your word that helps us with that. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who teaches us all things. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart and a mind and feet that want to obey you, Jesus, and live our lives for your glory and your purposes and for the good of others. Help me now, Lord, to teach and preach to that end in a way that's faithful to your word, brings glory to your name, and is helpful to these brothers and sisters whom I love. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the world in which the New Testament unfolded and the world in which Paul and the Thessalonians lived was, by most measures, a world that was outright hostile to Christianity. It was hostile to Christianity. It didn't like the exclusivity of Christianity. It didn't like the countercultural claim that Jesus was Lord in face of the common claim that Caesar was Lord and, and the whole pantheon of the Roman Greco gods. It didn't like the exclusivity of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. But nor did the world at that time like the morality of Christianity. That Jesus actually had a standard and would call us to different living, would call us away from the standards of the world and into the standards and values of his kingdom. They didn't like the call to holiness. And so for both church planners and church plants, missionaries and missionary outposts, those engaged in the work of the gospel and those receiving it, for both of those parties, there was much opposition to their Christianity. You'll remember that Paul and his buddies traveling with them, uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke, arrived in Thessalonica after leaving Philippi. And in Philippi, they encountered much opposition. In Philippi, they were severely beaten with rods, we read in Acts 16. And then they were imprisoned, and then they were shackled in that prison to stocks showed up to preach the gospel, were beaten with rods, big sticks, imprisoned and shackled for the ministry of the gospel. And you'll remember that after preaching here in Thessalonica, they were there for just a short time. They were essentially chased out of town. They experienced persecution and opposition here as well. We read that a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 17. And there was opposition to Christianity from all sides. There was opposition from normal citizens. There was opposition from governing authorities. And there was opposition from the religious Jews. And so for a young church, like the one that we're talking about in Thessalonica, there was a lot of societal pressure on all fronts to abandon its exclusivity, Jesus is Lord, and to abandon its morality. God is holy, therefore you should be holy. There was a lot of societal pressure from citizens, governing authorities, and other religious people to let go of the exclusivity and the moral call of Christianity. And that's why, because of that pressure, is why Paul wrote this letter to them. He was only with them for a short time, and then he had to leave quickly under duress, And so he didn't have the opportunity to sit them down and say, okay, listen, guys, 
It's going to be a tough road, but we, we, we got to hang in there. There's going to be some opposition, but stick with Jesus. And here's how you stand firm. And here's what you got to remember. He didn't have the opportunity. He wanted to return, but he didn't have that opportunity. So he sends them this letter wanting to encourage them and remind them that their faith in Jesus was real. That to follow him steadfastly is the right thing to do. And to encourage them with the fact that it's always worth obeying and sticking with Jesus in the face of opposition. And they needed that reminder. And we need this reminder. Because trying to follow Jesus in a culture that is contrary is difficult. That was their context. And that is also to some degree our context. And so the whole book of Thessalonians is about that. And this passage is a part of that. In this passage, Paul is encouraging them with the fact that their faith is real because its roots were real. It wasn't contrived. It wasn't make-believe. It wasn't an emotional moment. It wasn't just some experience. Their faith should be steadfast because their roots were real. So he encourages them by reminding them of the beginning of their faith journey. Remember how it all started. Remember it wasn't contrived. You weren't duped. You had an authentic experience with Jesus. So he says to them in verse 1, You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. You guys know that this stuff was real. Christ met you. You responded to the gospel. You were born again. You were delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. You know that that was real and that our work among you was not a failure. And now he's got to begin to defend his time and his work among them. Because whenever Paul would leave a city under duress, there were always those who on his heels would come in and want to give him bad press. Because it was a culture of the day that there were lots of competing truth claims. There were lots of people who said they knew they, the way or a way within religion. It was very much like our televisions. It was very much like our bookstores. There were a lot of charlatans. A lot of people who were in it for the wrong motives. A lot of people with false claims trying to gather people unto themselves. And when Paul was chased out of a town for his ministry, there was always people who wanted to give him bad press and come to the church that remained and said, now listen, that Paul guy, and, and that wasn't real. And that can't be the only way. And don't try to attain to those moral standards. Don't, don't go against the flow of the day and the city and the culture. And so Paul is now going to defend his ministry to the Thessalonians so that they might know to be secure in their faith that they were not defrauded in any way. He's going to highlight in this text his ministerial integrity. The fact that his ministry among them was real. So we're going to look at Paul's details, but I want us to think about our own details because once again, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you are called. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then your life is meant to count for his purposes, for his kingdom. So we'll learn about Paul's ministerial integrity, but let us think of our own. We'll learn about what real ministry looked like for him in Thessalonica, but let us think about our lives and our sphere of influence and the people that we are called to. So to help us with that, Paul says these three things about himself and his ministry team. 
that number one, their motives were pure. Number two, their methods were loving. And number three, the message was honest. Their motives were pure, their method was loving, and the message was honest. Their motives were pure. That begins to come out in verse two. We'll read it again. He says, you know how badly we've been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there, right? Being beaten with rods and imprisoned and shackled. And yet, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news the gospel to you boldly. We didn't walk into town all beat up and afraid of what might happen now. They, they boldly came in with the same message that got them in a lot of trouble in the previous city. In spite of great opposition. Verse 3, so you can see, we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or any trickery. Paul here is just appealing to logic. Because certainly his detractors were saying, look, Paul was in it for himself, or Paul was in it for selfish gain, or, or that was deceit, or this and that. Paul's saying, dude, I got beat to within an inch of my life, thrown in jail, and shackled in the last city I was in. And I walked into this one with the exact same message. I got to tell you guys, I'm not in it for my health. What becomes clear in Paul's defense here is that Paul and his buddies that he was ministering with were in it for the cause of the gospel, the glory of God, and the good of people. Because it was costing him much. There was tremendous difficulty. This wasn't smooth sailing. So he makes it clear. He makes it clear here. He was in it for the cause of the gospel, the glory of God, and the good of people. It's clear that Paul and his team, their ministry was selfless. It was self-sacrificing. It was inconvenient. It was costly. Cost him something. And it was, in every measure of the word, painful. Their service to the Lord, painful. But when we read the New Testament, we realize it was also glorious. He got to see lives changed, people saved, communities transformed, churches planted, the gospel going forth, people delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the sun. It was glorious, though it was painful, costly, inconvenient, required self-sacrifice and selflessness. And I wonder if we are not so opposed to the latter components, selflessness, sacrifice, inconvenience, cost and pain, that we seldom experience the glory of it. It was a hard road, but it was a glorious, worthy road that they traveled. Most people aren't willing to experience the difficulty. And so they don't experience the glory. Most of us, me included, preaching to myself, are concerned with pleasing ourselves. Is it just me? Or, conversely, we're very concerned with pleasing other people. We're people pleasers. We want to impress. We want to be accepted. We, we want to be affirmed. 
Generally, our posture in life is, I want to please myself and I want to please certain people. And that's contrary to the way Paul was living and perhaps to the way that we're called to live. That's contrary to Christian mission and gospel ministry. You see that the intense culture formed, fallen nature birthed, sin-oriented, self-preservationist mindset, this intense desire we have to please self at all costs is dangerous because it keeps us from a willingness to sacrifice for a greater cause. And then if we think about our desire to please others, to not be an offense, to curry favor with them, to move up the ladder, to be in the right circles, to be accepted, to be applauded. The danger of that in the face of ministry is our deep desire, sin formed, culture applauded, our deep desire to please others keeps us from a willingness to tell the truth, to just speak the truth. And how badly at this moment in history does our world need the truth? but there's a desire to please others manifest in our culture today, perhaps as political correctness, comparison, popularity contest, often keeps us from a willingness to tell the truth. And what Paul shows us here is that ministry with integrity was radically countercultural. The culture was self-oriented and politically oriented, pleasing others to advance your cause. And ministry, Christian mission, is contrary to culture. It's sacrificial And God-oriented. Look what Paul says in verse 4. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Our purpose is to please God, not people. I love the fact that for Paul, life wasn't a popularity contest. Life was an endeavor to be faithful to Jesus. That's what's driving him. That's that's what's forming the way that he thinks and acts and feels. It wasn't a popularity contest. It was an endeavor to be faithful to Jesus. We live in a culture that is one big popularity contest. How many friends do I have on that? Facebook thing? How many followers do I have in that tweet, tweet thing? How many people looked at my picture and commented? A culture of comparison, right? We form how we think about our bodies by comparing to others, how we think about our assets by comparing to others, how we think about our sphere of influence and our importance by comparing to others. And so culture, in conjunction with the sin nature, pushes us into this never-ending popularity contest. I mean, I think as faithful Christians, we, we, we have to ask ourselves, do I spend more time worried about what people think about me or more time asking what it means to be faithful to Jesus with this moment? And we just, we spend a lot of time. And Paul had the most freeing statement there. Paul said, look, dude, I'm not in it to please people. I'm looking to please God. 
That's a reversal. I'm not looking to please people. I am endeavoring to please God. And we, then as Jesus followers, have to deal with our opposite impulses to impress and please people or serve and honor God. And sometimes those come in juxtaposition to one another. These opposite impulses to impress and please people, including oneself, or serve and honor God. And we, brothers and sisters, have been entrusted with the gospel. We believe in the ministry of the saints, the priesthood of the saints, that every single Christian is called to live their lives on mission. It's not about vocational clergy. It's not about the guy up there. It's not about the staff at the church. This is a call on every believer to engage with your life, with your sphere of influence, with your gifts, with your resources, with God's mission to the world around you. And we've been entrusted with that. It's a ministry. It's a calling. God's calling is upon your life. And when we get to the end, we will give an answer for what we've done with that. We will answer to Christ with regards as his followers to what we did with the resources he gave us, the talents he gave us, the gifts he gave us, the sphere of influence, the vocation, the family, the position, the spaces, the places. We will give an answer to Christ about our integrity with that ministry. So I love the fact, the fact, excuse me, that Paul says, look, our purpose is to please God, not people. I'm running toward a different goal. I'm looking for a different day. I'm not counting retweets. I'm not finding my place in the people around me. I want to get to the end and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that very much has to do with motives. He says at the end of verse four, God deals with, with the issue of motives. He alone examines the motives of our heart. You know, motives are a tough thing. Motives are tough. As Christians, well, not even as Christians, as people in our culture, we get really good at masking. Don't we? I mean, you know this. You ask anyone that you know out and about, hey, how are you? And you only ever get one of two answers. Either, oh, dude, I'm good. How are you? Or, busy. Oh, man, busy. So busy. It's never the people that are actually busy. I know you, dude. You're not busy. You're not really busy. But no matter what's going on in our life, there are a few exceptions. But we have this culturally conditioned reflex to either say, good, mask, everything's fine, or busy, because busy denotes importance in our culture. That's why we say it. And we bring that same sort of masking into the church. And I apologize, I I encourage this because I often come to the pulpit and just because I don't know what else to say and I'm nervous every single time I preach and I got several hundred people staring back at me, I'm like, how are you guys? And everyone goes, great, awesome. No, you're not. (laughs) Not all of you all the time, no way. But we think inside the church, well, I got 
I mean, I'm a Christian now, so everything should be okay, and I can't have any problems, and here I am in church, so yeah, I got to be okay. And so, yeah, we're good. And then we just bring that masking right in. And then those are issues of motive. What is driving us to do what we do? What, what drives us to wear those masks? And often again, now it's that culture of comparison, wanting to please people. Gosh, Britt asked how I was. I want to please. I'm good. Excited to worship Jesus, bro. Can't wait for the sermon. We, we, we want to please people. One of the first things I ever did at a church serving was back at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. I was going to church there. This was years ago. And uh, someone just wrote me into just carrying the coffee urn from the coffee ministry back into the kitchen. That's all it was, man. And so I was carrying this big coffee urn and I came around the corner there at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara in the church and they have this long hallway down the side of the sanctuary. And I saw the pastor at the other end, Pastor Ricky Ryan. And in my mind, I instantly thought, this is a great opportunity for me to look good. There's a pastor, here's me just serving God with all my might, carrying this coffee urn. And I literally paused at the end of the hall, waited till he was done talking to the person, watched his trajectory down the hall and calculated how to intersect him perfectly so he would see me carrying the coffee urn and think I was an awesome Christian. I'm not kidding. Am I the only one that does this kind of thing? <laughs> Man, motives are a tricky thing. And here we are about 20 years later, and I still struggle with those things. There's been some growth. There's been some sanctification. But I still stand up before you guys to preach the word, and I want you to think well of me. I want you to think I'm smart and funny and articulate and wise and spiritual and holy and powerful and cool. I mean, you do, don't... (laughs) Now you're just, like, encouraging my sickness. (laughs) Busy. I'm super busy, too. Thank you. Super busy. Motives are a tough thing, you know. And when I'm preaching sometimes and there's a, a positive response, I can tell you guys are with me. I, I'm, I'm rejoicing in my spirit about that. I'm rejoicing in my heart. And I don't know sometimes that I think I'm so happy because they're getting the word of God and they're getting trained in righteousness for the glory of Jesus Christ. Or, okay, I, I sound like a good speaker and I'm doing good and they're following me. And Man, I'm so glad that the book of Jeremiah gave me grammar for this when it said the heart is desperately wicked and fully deceit. Who can know it? I'm so thankful for the example of Paul who in integrity was able to say, here's my deal, dude. I've been saved by Jesus Christ. I was a wretch. I was blind, but now I see. I have been delivered from the domain of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. I have a lover and a king and a glorious God, and I am the beloved of God. So I'm not in it to please people or for the applause of man. I'm in it for the glory of God, and God knows my motives. Then he says in verse five, never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witnesses that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. 
No flattery. Wasn't in it for the money. Wasn't in it for the praise. He wasn't political. He wasn't greedy. And he wasn't glory hungry. You know what flattery is, right? It's to give excessive or insincere praise to further your own interest. That's what politicians do. Jesus has delivered us from the need to be political and called us to speak the truth in love. But why do we do that? We do that because of our own self-orientation. If I, if, if I tell them this, then they'll think better of me or I'll, I'll get further with them. Paul says, that's just not the way that I do things in my ministry. I have a ministry with integrity. I'm not practicing flattery. I'm not political. He says, I, and I, I wasn't in it for selfish gain. You know that. I wasn't in it for the money. I wasn't asking, how is this going to benefit my bottom line? I wanted to be faithful to Jesus. And he says, and I wasn't looking for praise from you or anyone else. It's not in it for the glory. For Paul, it really is about the furtherance of the gospel, the glory of God, and the good of other people. This stuff is close to home for me. I don't know if it's just me today. But because I, 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 I want to be liked, I want to be affirmed, and I want to have more stuff. And here's a guy like Paul who says, you know, it just wasn't about those things for me. It was about a higher call. It was about a different set of values. It's not wrong to be liked. We all need to be affirmed. We all have stuff and most of us will get more stuff. But it's about ultimate values. And what happens when our values, our lesser values, come in conflict with these kingdom values. Well, I think that sometimes we just need to be willing to abandon or repent of our orientation to lesser values. Just repent of them. Kingdom value of self-sacrifice. So we got to repent of the, the, the desire to be self-oriented or comfortable in this or, or first in this or right in this or justified in this. Kingdom value of generosity. So we got to repent of our orientation toward greed and accumulation. Kingdom value of being the beloved of God, all of our identity in Christ. So we got to repent of our deep, deep desire for the approval and applause of people. There are times, about 300 times a day or so, where our little values come in conflict with the kingdom values. And those are moments for repentance. To turn from, to turn to. Paul said the same sort of thing to the church in Galatia when he wrote to them, chapter 1, verse 10. He said, obviously, I love when Paul says obviously. I think he used it like we use it, like, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. And now look at this juxtaposition. Look at this dualism. This is stark. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Thank you, Paul, for putting it that way. It's like when Jesus made it black and white for us when he said, here's the deal. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot have two masters. 
You cannot call or let money be your master and God be your master. It's just an impossibility to do the both. Here's another dualistic approach like that. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. And the glorious good news of the gospel is that it frees us from the deep sinful need to please people. Because through Christ, God is pleased with us. And if the sovereign God of the universe who spoke all things into existence, who holds all things together by the power of his word, who's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, if the glorious and holy one says that you are accepted and approved and beloved in Christ, then why do I care so much about what people say? And why do I get enslaved to the need to please and impress, which then abdicates my ability, preempts, halts my ability to be a servant of Christ. I like what Paul wrote to the Romans and said, a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. There's the ideal. There's the hope. There's the reality of being born again, a new nature. We're in a process now of this becoming real for us, But here's what it looks like. A person with a changed heart oriented toward God and his glory. Wretches who have been forgiven through the work of Christ on the cross. Seeks praise from God, not from people. So when our lesser values come in conflict with the kingdom values, sometimes we've got to be willing to repent. But what about our rights? I have the right. We are a right oriented nation and culture. It's all about rights. Equal rights for all people all the time. That's a good thing. But we are very serious about our rights. What if there are times where our rights come in conflict with the call of the kingdom, with a greater authority? Look what Paul says about that in verse seven. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you. But instead, we were like children, gentle among you. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. Look what he says in verse nine. Verse nine. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that, you would not be, so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. Now the backdrop here, What Paul is referring to when he speaks about his right is the biblical principle that we see in Old Testament and in New Testament that those who give their lives to the work of the kingdom, the work of the gospel, God's work, have a right to earn a living from that endeavor. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. Look at one example from 1 Corinthians. Paul writes and says, what soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion or does not the law, God's law, law of Moses, say the same thing? For the law of Moses says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? 
Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect, might both expect a share of the harvest. Speaking about ministry. Verse 11, since we have planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled, right, to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, that was a normal thing in the church, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? Speak as an apostle. But we've never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple and those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. There's the biblical principle. There's the right that Paul said he could have appealed to. Now, we could go a lot of places with that text. Some of you people are going this place. Well, yeah, Britt, well, then how come you just don't stop getting paid by the church? That's a fine question, but let's talk about you. (laughs) The salient point is this, that there came some moments, and there came a moment in Paul's life as he endeavored to please God, run for God, live life on mission, engage in the gospel work. That what was best for that was in conflict with his rights, his God-given right. And the salient point is that Paul said this, I'm willing to give up certain rights, even God-given rights, if that's what's going to move the mission forward. Because I'm not in it for me. I'm not the main point. I'm not the biggest part. I'm in it for the furtherance of the gospel. I'm in it for the glory of God and I'm in it for the good of other people. So if surrendering that right in this moment because of that context and the opposition there, if that helps people and brings maximal glory to God and furthers the kingdom, then I'm willing to surrender my rights. That's profound. That's profound. Because we are so right-oriented. But there are certain times when even our right rights come in conflict with the call of God upon our lives. You know, some of us have a right to the bitterness that we carry. It was that painful. It was that wrong. But in light of the kingdom and God's call, is that the right to hold on to? You know, some of us may have a right to more stuff. I did the work. I earned the money. There it is. But is there any way in which that comes in conflict with God's call upon your life or certain values of the kingdom? There's all sorts of different ways in which on occasion our rights come in conflict with God's call upon our lives. And Paul says, rather than always asserting my rights, that's how we generally live. Rather than just asserting my rights, I was, being, I was willing to be gentle like a child. So he said in verse 7. Some kids can get pretty persnickety about their rights, but he's using a general analogy there. Like a nice, sweet, little, humble kid, I'm not concerned about my rights. He says there, I was like a selfless mom. He says, I was like a mother to you guys. There is not a more selfless, self-effacing, self-sacrificial picture on earth than our moms. 
from the moment they begin to carry you, to birthing you, to nursing you, to spanking you. They mean it when they say this hurts me more than you. Paul looks for an analogy of the most selfless thing he could find. He says, I was like a mom among you. I wasn't asserting my rights. I was willing to give some up for your good. Moms know about that. You have a right to sleep. It's gone. (laughs) You have a right to eat when you want to eat. Not anymore. You have a right to go where you want to go and do what you want to do. Uh-uh. Not if you're going to be a good mama. Not if we're going to be good on mission Christians, so to speak. There are just times. There are just places. There are just spaces. We have to ask ourselves, this is what Paul was dealing with, if the assertion of self and our rights ever come in conflict or ever create barriers to people hearing the gospel from us. That's, that's tough stuff, man. I've been, you guys are just hearing it for 45 minutes. I've been sitting with it all week. I'm preaching to myself. Do we even think in those terms? Have we even gotten to the place where we're thinking, it's not all about my rights. It's about the furtherance of the gospel, the glory of God, and the good of other people. So we're willing to surrender a few things. This is hard. This is hard. It was hard for Paul. Paul said, gosh, I I ministered all day long. I preached the gospel. I did the work of pastoring. And then when all that was done, then I would go out and work with my hands just so there was no barrier. This, This is hard. And it was hard because they were living in a contrary culture, a society of opposition. We're in the same one. So this is crucial stuff for us. We're in a society of opposition. We're in a culture that is contrary to our exclusivity and our morality. So we need to think carefully about values and rights. Paul and his team were willing to do hard things. Willing to do hard things. And you know what can be hard sometimes? Loving people. Can I get a witness? Amen, brother. Now you're preaching. Oh, yeah. It's hard to love people. Sometimes it is. Part of Paul's ministry with integrity was that he loved these people. Second part of verse 7 again. We were like a mother feeding and caring for his own children. Her own children, excuse me. Verse 8. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. And now verse 11. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. That's the second point, and it's a brief one. Their motives were pure, and their methods were loving. Now, I don't know. I've spent a lot of years studying the Apostle Paul. And I just don't, correct me if I'm wrong, some of you know much more than I do, but I just don't get the feeling that he was like a, 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 a like mushy sort of guy like snuggle sort of guy. I don't get the feeling that he's kind of the guy like, oh, I just want to love you and just process and cry together and just hug and snuggle and all. Do you think otherwise? I think that what this was, these profound expressions of the way he loved these people, like a mother, like a father, giving my life to you. I think that what this love was, was obedience-inspired, Holy Spirit-helped kind of love. 
Loving them because he is so loved by God. Loving them because God so loved them, the world, that he gave his only son. I don't think it was always easy. I don't think this is a mushy thing. I think it's obedience-inspired. Holy Spirit, God, help me to love this person. Holy Spirit, helped sort of love. I think that's a call on the church. And to do it all for the sake of the gospel. Because of God's love. We should be thinking about maybe who do we need to love in our lives? It's hard to love. Where do we need to pull and muster with the help of the Holy Spirit? Some of this obedience-inspired Holy Spirit helped sort of love. Not because it makes us feel good, not because it's what we want to do, but for the furtherance of the gospel, the glory of God and the good of people. And my final point, and it's a short one. The me- their message was honest. Their motives were pure, their methods were loving, and their message was honest. Now the message was simply the gospel, the good news. That we were sinners separated from God by our sin. That our sins were against God. That we violated God's moral standard in multitudinous ways. And that this broke relationship between God and humanity. And that we were destined for eternal separation from God. But it was unacceptable to God because God loves us. And so because he loves us, he sent his son to die on the cross for us. In our place, on the cross, to pay the price for our sins, that we might be forgiven of our sins, restored in relationship to God, and know him now and forever in glory. That was the message. Of course, he was honest about that message. But the point from this is, he was honest about the implications of that message. With the gospel message and becoming the beloved of God through Faith in Jesus Christ does not then mean that we could do whatever we want to do. It's actually a call to righteous living. Verse 12, final verse, he says, we pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and in his glory. Paul was honest about the implications of the gospel. That though we've been saved by grace, that doesn't mean that we just live however we want to live. We have a new nature. We have a new allegiance. Remember, it's of Christ's kingdom. We become imitators of God. Walk in a manner worthy of his calling, what Paul told them. He was honest. That was a hard call. They were in a culture like ours. It was oriented, it was calibrated in a whole different direction. And he's honest about the implications of the gospel. You've been saved by grace. You have a new nature. God's spirit is in you. Walk in holiness, sanctification, righteousness, and obedience because that brings glory to God. He was just honest about that. I like the way he says it in Ephesians chapter five. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children right? Not because we're fearful slaves to God, but because we're beloved sons and daughters. So imitate God who is holy and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. 
But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. Is this convicting for anyone other than me? Which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, okay, because you're not sons and daughters of disobedience, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you're not idolaters, you say Jesus is Lord, therefore, he's speaking to Christians, do not become partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness. It doesn't say of darkness or playing with darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light. The fruit of the light or what the light of God in us produces is goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. There's a phrase. There's a phrase. You see how that was like a big thing for Paul. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord as opposed to self or other people. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Truth-telling in a contrary culture. Verse 12, for it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, here's the word to us. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. The day in which we live is contrary to the kingdom of Christ. Therefore, be careful. Don't you get that sense from Paul? that he was careful about his values. He was careful about his rights and the assertion of them. He was careful about people and how he handled them and loved them. A ministry with integrity, real ministry. And it wasn't hypocrisy. He said in verse 10 of our text, you yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. I am profoundly challenged by and encouraged by the example of Paul's ministry as I think about my own ministry. And we've got to think about our lives. We can't just say, oh, well, that was, that was good for Paul. It'd be appropriate to allow the Lord to deal with our own motives, our motives in saying yes and our motives in saying no. Some of the things that we say yes to are, are, are the motives people-pleasing oriented, self-pleasing oriented, politically oriented? Are motives in saying yes? Am I carrying the coffee urn because Pastor Ricky will see me and think I'm awesome? And are motives in saying no? We've got to think about why we say no as it pertains to Christian mission, ministry, being faithful stewards. We've got to think about why we say no. When we often here stand up and ask for volunteers and put before you the volunteer forms and way less than 10% of you ever respond. We, we got to think about what that motive is. 
Why do we say no to that? When we think about God's mandate to reach the unreached, to take the gospel to the nations where it's never been before, why is it an infinitesimally, almost incalculably tiny number of Christian men and women who say yes to that? What are the motives in that? Surely God is calling more. When it's your coworker, you know they need the gospel, your family member, and they know they need, you need that love or that rebuke. What are our motives in saying no? I don't know. I think for me often it has to do with convenience and unwillingness to sacrifice because some of those things are hard. And yet we are called to these things. So we've got to think about our motives. We've got to think about our values, the assertion of our rights and the way they clash with kingdom values and kingdom calls to sacrifice and to service. We need to think about where have we been unwilling to surrender to God's call? What rights might we need to forego for the promise of new life that others might receive new life? This is the truth of God's word. Lord, that you would help us now. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us. And that you would help us now to bring our lives into obedience to your word. That you'd help me, Lord. I know I I am deeply convicted by these things. And maybe others too. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, sometimes we don't even know our motives. We've all got blind spots we don't see. We've all got comparison and acceptance issues and our own hopes and dreams. Just that you gently, Holy Spirit, would come now and speak to each one of us as individuals. Holy Spirit, come. Lead us in paths of righteousness for Christ's namesake. Thank you that we are the beloved of God, accepted in Christ before the God of the universe. Help us to rejoice in that and live that and obey. Walk in a manner worthy of that glorious call. We ask it together in Jesus' name.